coming from a family of practitioners and, and clinicians, my dinner table talk was debriefing a surgery. I mean, I would I would hear about things from a clinical nature. I would go on house calls when I was a kid. So so medicine was always something that was incredibly fascinating to me. You know, a lot of people don't understand this when they hear it, but they talk about practicing medicine. You don't really understand that the word practicing means they are practicing medicine the same way you practice basketball. So you're listening to these things and things that are working, things aren't working. So naturally in HR, I gravitated towards health insurance because people needed that to help them at times at their darkest hour. We talk a lot about in this country that it's really not health insurance, it's sick care um, or sick insurance. And, and I agree with that sometimes. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work. The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing David Voorhees. David is the founder and CEO of True Captive Insurance, a one-of-a-kind alternative to traditional self-funded or fully insured arrangements, providing small to medium businesses with innovative health care options at a substantial long-term discount, while creating programs that employees feel the value in the investment made by their employers. Prior to founding True Captive, he held several executive positions in human resources and in student recruiting at for-profit colleges. He has a Bachelor of Science in Management from the University of Phoenix and graduated summa cum laude with a Master of Management in Human Resources Management from the University of Phoenix. You can learn more about David at truecaptive.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to David. David, I'd like to welcome you this morning to the Corporate Couch. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, we talk about a lot of things, but we will not talk about the New York Yankees because I know you're a fan and obviously I am. Uh, but uh, since they didn't make the playoffs for the first time since 2016, we'll we'll keep that off the table. So probably a wise choice. We'll keep yeah. me uh, in good spirits. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, you and I met uh, through Scott Havens when you were heading up uh, HR at eSolution. So uh yeah, we met over at uh, uh, whatever coffee shop is off college in Antioch, so whatever that is. Anyhow, yeah, uh, yeah uh, excited to talk to you uh, and uh, being the founder and CEO of uh, True Captive now. Uh, I can't wait to uh, delve into your uh, career journey up to this point and uh, see what exciting things you're doing at True Captive. So, yeah, so let's start with a fun question. Um, so even that people know you fairly well, David, what one thing would uh, surprise them about you? Oh, interesting. Well, since this is called the, the corporate couch, uh, I'll, I'll give you a deep answer. You know, I think a lot of people think of me as, as intimidating at times, or I'm very sure of myself, I'm very confident. And there's a picture that you see that's like a little lion cub. And then um, in the in the reflection, the lion cub sees a, a full lion. And for a lot of my career, as I was trying to develop that confidence in what I did, um, most people saw the lion and I saw the cub. And so it was one of those things where I think most people are surprised to hear that I had to learn confidence. I just it wasn't just built in me. It was working with different types of people, gaining feedback from other people, trying to tap into the things that they shared I was good at and trying to work on the side on the things that I knew I needed to get better at. But that was that's most people's, I'm shocked to hear about David is 
uh, I can come off as very confident. And, you know, it was something that I had to build over years, not, you know, just walked out of life and go, hey, I can do anything. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, so uh, I, you grew up in Kansas City, I believe? I did. Uh, born in Miami, Florida, but then migrated to, to the great state of Kansas. The, the great state of Kansas. Love it. So what was fun for you growing up? What did you love doing? Lots of things. Uh, I think the first thing was snow coming from Miami. Not a lot of snow. I remember the first time in seeing that I, I looked at mom and I said, look, mom, crab holes. You know, the, I saw my my feet doing that, but uh, loved basketball, have always loved basketball, which is great to be in Kansas. You know, like being in the outdoors, uh, absolutely love sports. So, you know, growing up, those are the things that I, I was interested in participating in, being competitive. Um, I was fortunate enough to go on you know, trips with my family and learn about different cultures and different places in the country. And, you know, I've, I've always been a fan of history. So learning about, you know, our country and, and, and the history of how it's adapted itself. So it's, it was a good childhood. Yeah. Very nice. When you were, when you were young, did you have aspirations of like, when I grow up, I want to be in the NBA or what, what, what was that for you? I'm sure there was a time that I wanted to be in the NBA, but I also was a realist. And so I never thought that that was going to be uh, something that I, I would be able to accomplish. I did want to be an Air Force pilot. I wanted to fly the F-16. I had set everything up to, to do that and, and go to Colorado Springs and, and you know really wanted that more than just about anything. Unfortunately, my eyes weren't good enough. And when I talked to the recruiter, they said, and this is you know, 25, 26 years ago, like, yeah, the best you're going to be able to fly is a, is a cargo plane. And, you know, when you're a kid and you wanted to fly the F-16 and hearing the cargo plane, you're like, that eh, doesn't sound that cool. Now, as you get older and realize what those things can do, maybe a little more cool. Uh, but that was that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to fly the F-16. And that's that's my goal. So if anybody listening can do that, um, it takes a sitting senator to get you in the F-16 trainer. So if anybody knows a sitting senator or maybe a retiring F-16 pilot who's willing to, you know, slide me into the to the seat, um, I'm, I'm all ears. You you let me know. Yeah, well, uh, Baron Lucas, uh, I interviewed two weeks ago. He uh, he was in Top Gun, ran a battalion of 1,500 uh, fighter pilots in his 30-year uh, career in the Marines, uh, actually was in the part of the, well, not part of the filming, but he was on um, at Miramar when they filmed the original Top Gun. So I I, wow. I tried to get him. He was on a non-disclosure. And so I tried to egg him on to see if he actually <laughs> got in a fight with Tom Cruise or anything like that. But so anyhow, he did not reveal anything. <laughs> but here's your guy, if you, you know, if you need that. Talk about your college journey. What was uh, kind of your initial major or uh, and, and final major? And might have been the same with Talk about that and why did you pick that major in the college? And Yeah, definitely didn't finish with what I started with. So father and grandfather, both uh, physicians, one a surgeon, one a general practitioner. Actually, but you won't see this, but behind me is my grandfather's medical degree. Um, and, and actually, unbeknownst to me, that would really drive my career, my passion for, for helping people, maybe not in the same way he did. So I went pre-med, went to the University of Kansas. Uh, I think I, when I finished all together, I had five or six majors. Um, I graduated with 180 undergraduate credits when you only need 120. So the joke was I was Van Wilder and I would tell everybody, but I wasn't that cool, which is a hundred percent true. Um, I finished with business management and a minor in psychology, uh, ultimately got my master's uh, in management and a minor in human resources. So I I liked learning a lot and I would change my major and then I'd focus on the core classes. And what I had to do, I had to go back and fill out my electives. That's the part that I missed, which most people, they avoid their, their major credits because those are the harder classes, the 300 and 400s. Those are the ones that I, I loved, uh, like child psychology, abnormal psychology was fascinating, IO psychology, you know, the psychology of business, which is really fun. So spent a lot of time, probably more time than I should have in college, wasn't ready to grow up. Uh, my parents loved that. They were really fans of me spending a great deal of time in college, but ultimately looking back and reflecting, you know, it was a good experience. I learned how to move through the world and, and learned a lot of stuff that I don't use today, but at the time I found very, very interesting. 
Interesting. Yeah, that's a yeah, 180 credit hours. That's a that might be the that's record that, that I've heard of based on all the guests. But I, I love that. Um, so, uh, what was your first job post college after you graduated, and how did you get it? Uh, first, I'll say my real first real job. My first real job was at Sprint, um, and I was a department assistant three. Uh, basically it was more of an administrative assistant. Uh, I did a lot of data entry, but it was funny. This is probably three years ago. I was cleaning out some of my stuff that I had from my past. And I saw the first presentation that I did in my career and guess what it was. It was a employee benefits presentation. Oh, I was like, working on wow. presenting to Sprint employees about healthcare and it was on a three by five disc, right? Like it wasn't a floppy disc, but we, you know, we had those little three by five inch discs. Yeah, yeah. And I saw that and I just smiled because, you know, as I mentioned, my grandfather had a great deal to do with my career path. And, and that was one of those things that at the time, no idea uh, that that was my first presentation, but look where I'm at now and how, how that was there. So I was at Sprint. Um, what a, what a interesting experience for your first job. It was I've had so many good educational moments in my career. This one was the first one of, there were a lot of miserable people there because there was a lot of turnover and they were f afraid of losing their job. And, you know, when one person puts something in your ear, you know, you hear it and you gossip and it's like, there's just so much angst and I didn't know any better. I just put my head down and I worked my butt off. Um, and I subsequently kept getting the nod to do different things. Um, but that was such a great education. Obviously, I didn't like people being unhappy, but at the same time, you know, that they just perpetually went through through layoffs. But I remember very vividly, you know, I always had aspirations. I always wanted to to be promoted and I wanted to learn more and take on more responsibility. You know, when you're younger, you, you have really good ambition. Maybe you don't know how to control it. So sometimes that wears on people. But I remember pointing at the director's office and saying, Hey, how long is it going to take me to get there? And they said, Ah, you know most people could probably get there in 15. If you work really hard, you can get there in 10 years. And I thought to myself, no, I, I don't want to be waiting that long to get into that position. Because again, enthusiastic, a lot of ambition, maybe a little blind confidence that I shouldn't have yet. Uh, but I did. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And so, you know, that propelled me into other areas of my career. But the first one was Sprint, Department Assistant 3. Yeah, I love the, love the title. <laughs> <laughs> Because it means nothing really outside of right. the written world. My first one out of college, I worked for AT&T. I went through their uh, management leadership program and software development. I was an MPS 22, uh, <laughs> member programming staff 22. Yeah. So I spent, uh, I left AT&T, went to Sprint uh, in uh, when they were about 18 months old in the long distance division that which how it spread started. But yeah, I mean, I, I was so used to layoffs and, you know, it was crazy how many times we had layoffs. And so I totally understand the, the psyche, but, and, and you mentioned this also, but Sprint was a great learning ground. I mean, you got to do a lot of different things because they, you know, and uh, whether that was by choice or because other people <laughs> didn't want to do it. Um, uh, but you were probably there in uh, po post uh, right before the Nextel merger, or when? when right was before, I was there for the Nextel. I mean, the big fanfare yeah. and the gym and everything. Right, right. It was it was wild and funny enough. This is before being able to remote into your computer became a big thing. Yeah, uh, I built a tunnel so I could. And again, I was ambitious. And when you're ambitious, you know you need to work harder than everybody else. So I had built a tunnel into my work desktop and I would be able to do data entry at home at night and over the weekend. Wow. And so I was able to, to exceed expectations by figuring out how to be a little bit more efficient. I don't think IT would have been happy to know that I knew how to do that. Um, right. But at the same time, if you're going to trust somebody, trust me. There you go. And you were doing work. You were right. like you were hacking the... System. No, no, I was, I was literally, I was typing in data. I was taking yeah. data from one area and then transposing it into another area. Yeah. Glorious work. Yeah. You weren't kind of uh, fudging the, with the payroll system, you know, every uh, dot, you know, every cent you were rounding up and putting it into your payroll. 
uh boy wouldn't that be a, that would be a good thing i did not make a lot of money it's it's funny i remember after graduating college i was sitting on the the front deck with my dad and you know all those philosophical conversations you have with your folks this was one of them and my dad had asked me you know how much do you think you're gonna make and i said i'm not accepting a job for less than thirty six thousand dollars there's no way i can work for anything less than thirty six thousand dollars my first job at Sprint was $24,000. So one, not only was I incorrect, um, but no, I certainly did not put extra pennies into that check. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, the good old intestinal fortitude in less than $24,000. I love it. Love it. So uh, looks like you spent a, a fair amount of your career in the kind of the online learning uh, space with the uh, University of Phoenix and Brown Mackey. Uh, kind of walk us through that and your learnings in, in that environment. Yeah, it, what what an interesting experience, and one that, from a cultural and leadership perspective, was incredibly rewarding. Uh, you know, for profit education, and and you can read a lot about this. There certainly is a sales culture to enrolling students, and I felt like our campus here in Kansas City was special because yes, we had numbers that they wanted us to hit, but we really did believe we were helping adults get education that were going to help advance their careers. And we did. So the fact that we were trying to get them into school, um, you know, didn't seem like we were doing harm because the leaders were really focused on how we were able to change some of these people's quality of life. So in, in that world, you know, sales culture, I was really good at that. I was really good at talking to people and listening to what their hopes and their dreams were and trying to say like those things won't work without a college degree. And I knew that because, I mean, part of me staying in school so long was I didn't want to give up being a kid. I didn't want to give up flexibility and freedom of what being a kid is. I mean, you have little odd jobs and stuff, but you don't have the type of responsibility you do as an adult and you don't have the earning potential. And I, I dodged that as long as I could until ultimately somebody told me, if you don't get a degree, you're not going to be able to get a job. And I remember that vividly and I, I got to work and I, I finished up very quickly after that. But in that space, I was very good at, at helping talk to students. And uh, I was always interested in helping my neighbors, whether they wanted it or not. You know, I always had this leadership characteristic. And the campus president at the time pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, here, here's the thing. You're going to be good no matter what you do. We know that we can lean on you if we need to do something. You're going to get it done and you're going to lead the pack. He goes, but you can be one of two people. You can be that sales mercenary and you can be the best of the best. And, you know, maybe some people like you and maybe some people tolerate you and maybe a lot of people don't like you. Or you can be the light that shines bright and helps others light shine bright as well. Kind of the ships raising tides mm -hmm. conversation. And that dawned on me. I didn't really like it because there were some other conversations that he, you know, said there's a fine line between arrogance and confidence. And he was right. But I went home and I reflected on that. I was like, look, if I want to be a leader, if I really want to help other people grow and, and learn lessons and get better, then I'm going to have to take that to heart. I can go find a way to make money. Making money is not hard if you if you want to work hard, but I do want to lead and I do want to help. And so uh, ultimately got put into a leadership position, um, ran one of the top five campuses in the country, uh, you know, really built a great culture had a lot of great leaders around me. Um, you know, we were also a bunch of stupid kids doing stupid things. And, you know, you kind of reflect on that and go, gosh, I wish I didn't do that. But at the same time, it's like you're a kid, you know, you're learning how to be an adult. I mean, things are funny that aren't funny now. Like when I'm at the university of Kansas basketball games and kids are screaming obscenities and, and all sorts of things at the ref. And I'm like, I have my six-year-old kid here, quiet down. But then I realized 20 years ago, I was the idiot in the stands yelling, you know, F you ref. So it's, it's full circle. Right. What, what kind of turned, uh, uh, you know, flipped the light switch. I mean, you're here, you are at 180 credit hours in college. Not that you didn't have ambition, but you didn't want to take that next step into adulthood. And then you, you know, you get to sprint and you're like, you're a hard driving, hey, I want to, I'm not waiting 10 years to be a director, definitely not 15. I want to be a director in five years or whatever. And yeah, because they all had the hard world, you know, hard world office with the close, you can close the door, that, that good stuff. I get me out of the cube farm and get me into a hard wall. So what, what flipped the switch for you? I've always been competitive. 
Uh, and I, I, I'm always competitive with myself. So when I hear things like, I want to do that better, I want to do it faster. Uh, I want to be more efficient, whatever it is. It, it, it's just something innate in me. And it's always been that way. So, you know, as I, as I looked at these things, it's, it's challenges to help me continue to grow. And as you get older, the idea of growth changes and you become wiser. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday. I happened to be in Fort Smith, Arkansas with a customer. And um, one of our customers happens to be one of the largest ticket makers in the country. And I got to see all these tickets from all these things, you know, from Sugar Ray Leonard to Olympics to fairs. And, and I just felt this, this feeling of, of just gratitude that I was able to see all these things and think about all these people having joy doing them. But in your twenties, you don't understand that. That's, that's just not there. And it, it, it's just the evolution of life. And so no matter what I've done though, it's always been, I want to be able to do something better than the person did it for, before me. And I always wanted to be able to bring more people into it. And ever since that conversation at the University of Phoenix, that became that shtick of, okay, listen, I want to help others get there too. Because if we can do it together, we can probably do it better. We can be more fulfilled. We can make better, you know, better value together. We can make a bigger difference type thing. But I've always just had that gear of, I, I want to be able to, to do something better and I'm hard on myself. And there's no, I, it's the truth. There's nobody that's going to say anything to me that I haven't said worse to myself. Did you have, whether you had met them or just through books, but did you have, you know, uh, one or more leadership mentors that really impacted you, uh, that helped kind of form, you know, how you developed as a leader? Not directly, not directly. I'm, I'm a student of anybody willing to talk to me about everything. I'm, I'm willing to listen to it. And that's, but I've never had somebody that I had regular meetings with, or, you know, I had a, a, a boss that was great. And I mean, we'd have one-on-ones and we'd have conversations, but never, never that mentor, um, you know, being that kid who was ambitious and maybe a little bit more confident than he should be. You have that air about you that I can figure it out on my own. And, and there has been lots of lessons in that. I mean, I have taught myself how to do countless things and there may have been ways to do it more fast or, or, or maybe better, but there was something humbling in those lessons because there was a lot of failure in it. Not that I recommend everybody be that person, but that, that was very humbling to me to try things on my own and fail and then learn how to do them because I don't have quit in me, but there never was that one, that one person that did that now book wise, um, I, I haven't been a giant book reader. Um, so if people are looking for gifts to give me, don't give me the, you know, the latest autobiography, cause it's not something that I'll read, but for whatever reason, you know, happenstance is my best stance. Um, and I've had a lot of good luck in my life. I remember standing in the doorway of my manager at the university of Phoenix and she was, she did a great job of teaching leadership and things like that, but she had a book that for whatever reason, I'm like, I'm going to read this thing. Um, it was the 21 irrefutable laws, uh, by John C. Maxwell. 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And for whatever reason, I saw it and I read it and uh, it changed the way I looked at management and leadership. And, and that book ultimately became a foundational piece for how I tried to build cultures and how I tried to adapt and, you know, how do you, how do you integrate different departments? And so that was, if there was a book that I would recommend to any leader who's just thinking about, you know, how do I understand adapting, building, growing, that was the book for me. Yeah. So you, you know, so you, you, you work for a lot of different companies and we'll keep true captive uh, aside for now, but, you know, DST, Nolan Real Estate Services, eSolutions, Informa, where you were head of HR for the Americas. What, what have all those companies, uh, including Brown Mackey and, and University of Phoenix, what, which one had the best culture for you and why? Hmm. Well, they all had different cultures and they all had different good parts and bad parts. And so I, I couldn't tell you which one had the, the best culture because they each had their moments. They each had their high moments where things were great and people were performing and people were happy. And then they each had their moments where people were not kind to one another and, and just didn't treat each other well. And when that happens, you know, you have a breakdown in function and, and your performance lag. So I, I can say that there are times that 
each one of those roles were incredibly rewarding. And there are times where I question what in the heck was I doing there? Um, but that's the world of HR. So it, it, it again, um, we've had the fortune of having one of the better years in the country as an insurance uh, insurance carrier. So we're a captive insurance carrier. We take risk. We're not a broker. A lot of people you know, ultimately think we're, we're brokering. Those are our partners. They're out there selling our product. Uh, but we're having one of the better years in the country. And I've had other captives call me um, and other large carriers call me and go, how are you doing it? Uh, or, you know, you're a first time CEO. How are you able to do this? And I was like, HR. And they go, what do you mean by HR? It's like, well, first of all, you have absolutely no authority. Zero, right? Um, you might have a gavel, but it's it's one that you probably shouldn't use if you can avoid it. Um, so you have to lead through influence. And then since you're working in different departments, if you're smart, you're learning, you're listening, you're trying to figure that out. But you also have to get the leaders of each of those departments to feel like what they're doing matters to them and hits on those notes, but also positioning them to be focused towards the major goal. And, and that is what I learned how to do in, in those different careers. And so we're not careers, different, different companies. That was just very, very rewarding for me. And, and now I can look back and say, wow, what, what an impact that made on me. We'll say it was, it was funny. Um, I don't know if I took great offense to this, but it pissed me off. And I will let this person remain nameless. So if they if they hear me talking about that, they'll know who they are. But I was interviewing for a role that I really wanted um, at a very well-known um, philanthropic natured organization in Kansas City. And I'd been recommended for it by several people. And they were using somebody to help them with this. So they kind of forced me into that interview. You know, I, I was I was a candidate of choice, we'll call it that way. But I don't think they wanted me to interview it. It wasn't the the company, but the people placing it. And I sat down, we were having this interview, um, and he said the same thing, you've worked here, blah, blah, blah. And uh, and then he goes, you know what? I have no idea if you're good at what you do, but I can tell you, you've been resourceful. And man, did that piss me off. I mean, it, it was it was, it was interesting, I will tell you that. But you know what? That's become fire for me. It's like, yes, I am resourceful. And that is a great skill to have in any company you are in. Um, so as you, you sling that as a a, um, a comment that you did not mean to be positive. Uh, I kind of tucked it away and said, let me use it as rocket fuel when when days aren't going the way they need to or or you know, trying to change an industry that is largely uh, foundational to, to the country. And when days are resistance filled, keep pushing, keeping that fuel because, damn it, I'm resourceful. So interesting. I share that. You're you're the Michael Jordan of the corporate world. Like Michael got fueled by criticism and you know uh, you know people that said he couldn't do something or you know getting cut, which he technically didn't get cut as a sophomore from the basketball team. He just didn't make varsity. <laughs> so he, you know the story is you know he got cut from the basketball team as a sophomore in high school, but. Um, yeah, but, you know, Jordan was uh, renowned for, you know, people criticized him or said something that he couldn't do. You know, he was all out. I mean, you know, YouTube is a Hall of Fame acceptance speech. I mean, he took it out on people years later. <laughs> Not that I'm saying yeah. you're going to do that, David, when you get I could. But... <laughs> I, I could. Now, what, listen, what a wonderful compliment. Thank you. Uh, I don't I don't know if I'm quite on, on that level, but it, it is something having a six-year-old boy uh, who, you know, boys love to be dared. Boys love to have challenges. And, and you know, you, as you get older, you start to realize sometimes people daring you and challenging you don't have your best interest in heart. They want you to do something because they don't want to do it. And so as I think about that, um, you know, the people that have challenged me, other people have doubted me. I've got another story about doubt when I started True Captive. But if you use it to create something that's positive, if you use it as fuel that can help push you to directions that are your intentions are pure, um, it, it can be very helpful. But conversely, um, you can let those chips sour you very easily. And then I've had moments where I've I've been annoyed by stuff that people have said. And I, I've been in places where I'm probably not happy that I let it bother me as much as I have. So it's a fine line. It really is. I mean, it can be rocket fuel. It can help you persevere, but it can also really do harm if you just fester on it. Uh, because it's not going to do any good 
know, Kobe Bryant says this and he's, he's right. If you win the next day, you put on your pants and you got to go through the journey, right? And if you lose the next day, you got to put on your pants and go through the journey. The constant is the journey. The win or the loss is, is largely irrelevant. I mean, you want to appreciate it. You want to celebrate it. But my journey is going to be the same the next day. It doesn't matter what I did. And, and that's huge. And I think we can all remember that. Use the things that you can use, the things that you can't. Try to get rid of them as fast as you can. It's human to be upset with people that maybe say things to you that are, are not polished. But um, use what you can and discard the rest and you know, run as hard as you can. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I love that advice. That's great. Um, yeah, so you're, I mean, obviously successful, you know, uh, you know, heading up HR uh, for, you know, different companies, these solutions, Informa. So it looked like when you're Informa, you started to kind of bake this idea of true captive insurance. So tell us about that and what, you know, what drove you and. Yeah, so, you know, coming from a family of, of, practitioners and, and clinicians, you know, my dinner talk table was, uh, or my dinner table talk was maybe debriefing a surgery. I mean, I would, I would hear about things from a clinical nature. I would go on house calls when I was a kid. So, so medicine was always something that was incredibly fascinating to me. You know, a lot of people don't understand this when they hear it, but they talk about practicing medicine. You don't really understand that the word practicing means they are practicing medicine the same way you practice basketball, right? Um, so so you're listening to these things and things that are working, things aren't working. So naturally in HR, I gravitated towards health insurance because you know people needed that to help them at times at their darkest hour. Um, we, we talk a lot about in this country that it's really not health insurance, it's sick care um, or sick insurance. And, and I agree with that sometimes. But I gravitated towards that and I have an ability that um, when people talk to me, I take it as a huge compliment when they share with me things that are personal and they stay with me um, because somebody just trusted me with something that you know is incredibly private. And so when I started to hear things about people's conditions or things that they were facing, you know, it became a challenge to me to find a solution in a way that I could, right? I wasn't practicing medicine. I can't cure anything. But maybe I could make something more efficient and effective so you could worry about getting healthy versus thinking about how you could afford something. Um, so I became somewhat of a, a fixer or a closer is I would come in and I would re, you know, rebuild a healthcare plan and, and create efficiency and try to understand what in that culture would fit with certain components of healthcare insurance plans. Um, and became very good at that. And it was fun for me. It was it was a passion of mine. So and I'm thinking there, I had been pitched by other captives in my seat, you know, prior years. And I've, I'm a big believer of captives. Even our competitors, I have great um, admiration for what they're doing. I have, I have a lot of celebratory things to say about the things that they do. Um, I'm a captive believer. David, uh, uh, I know you're, it's your industry, but explain the concept of a captive to the, our audience. Yeah, captive effectively is, uh, think of it, a, an umbrella over a pool of unaffiliated companies. So there are different companies that pool together to create leverage in the market. And they do that in different components. So they do it in property and casualty. So uh, workers comp, auto, um, they do it in facilities. And then they do it, which which is older than what we do, which is a captive over healthcare. So health risk. Now it's been around for 30 years, so it's not like it's brand new, but there are some, some pretty big names in the industry that have been doing it for a while. And I'm impressed. I'm appreciative of that too, because they had to sling it out and educate the market. And now we're here um, and we're still having to educate the market, but that market was educated before we got there, you know? Um, so when we, I was thinking about this at Informa, the biggest two obstacles in any health insurance plan from a corporate perspective are one, um, it's misalignment. That's, that's obstacle number one. So insurance companies aren't honest with people and they should because business owners understand this. I tell people all the time, insurance is easy. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, it's simple. I got to make more money than I lose, right? Because if I lose more money than I make, I now uh, am in trouble because I can't function in my business. But we've been 
circling the drain of charging less for the risk that we have because we have to be competitive in the market, but all you're doing is making what you're doing riskier. So that's the first part. It's it's financially we're misaligned. And you'll hear a lot about in the industry that misalignment. So that was the first piece that I said. I was like, all right, got to fix that. And then the second piece is, is we kept regurgitating the same plans for every single company. You'd have two plans, you have three plans, there are PPO plans, so you have a, a copay and an out-of-pocket but they weren't built in the image of the company. So for all the companies that I have been in, every single one was different. Some were younger, some were older, some were white collar, some were blue collar. Um, and those people consume insurance very differently. So if you listen to what people want and you give them something that they can use and understand, they follow the plan, they follow the program, they have a better experience. And what happens when people have better experiences? the financial rewards occur. So your company spends less on insurance. Um, and so that was the two things that I was I was just driving me nuts of how can I do that? Create financial alignment for the organization and then create a better experience and build plans that were for the culture that they were serving. And that's where I landed is build an insurance company. Oh, by the way, um, I do have a, a minor screw loose. Um, I decided to do this in the midst of a global pandemic. So that was interesting. But um, the idea was build the insurance company from the group up, not from the insurance company down. Like I said, insurance is easy. So if I understand the concept of making more money than I lose, then I build my entire philosophy around that. The problem is that your goal is to make money and your byproduct is maybe help people, despite what the commercials say. That's the byproduct. If you build the company to help people, the byproduct is making money. So it's not like we don't want to make money. I joke about this all the time. It's the truest thing I could tell you. If I describe myself in three seconds or less, I'm a bleeding heart and a raging capitalist. And those two things keep each other honest. So I'm never going to tell you that insurance companies shouldn't make money. I am going to tell you that they should just be honest about it because people understand that and you'd be transparent and work together. So we did that. We said, look, if we start at the company and go up, the insurance piece is easy. Um, and the byproduct has been really happy and satisfied employees. Um, and then the byproduct is very profitable for our members and, and ourselves as well. Yeah, I mean, I've interviewed a, a fair amount of people that have started companies during the pandemic. So we will touch on that. But I mean, so, but once you went, um, you know, because you kind of were baking the idea look like when you were still at Informa. But once you left Informa, you were full time the CEO of True Captive Insurance. Kind of what six months in to that full time, uh, David, what was your biggest surprise outside that there was a global pandemic probably? Uh, well, I mean, there were so many surprises along the way. I think the biggest surprise was the the anxiety and the fear. Um, I went it alone for a long time. Now, granted, I'm an efficient guy, so I could keep up with all the work. But I mean, there was so much anxiety and so much pressure on making sure that I was building something that was going to stand the test of time. And I remember my wife very vividly, who, you know, uh, my greatest partner of all said, because I, I, I wouldn't hire somebody. I said, what if I fail? What if I have to lay them off? What what if you know what if the company doesn't go? She goes, listen, these are adults you're talking to. They understand what they're getting themselves into. They know that they're not going to work for Google. You know, they're going to work for something that has, you know, some risk and some volatility. So you let them make that decision. Don't make the decision for them. It's so wise, right? Because I was killing myself doing all this stuff on my own and I started to bring in people. But that was the biggest surprise is how much anxiety it is to to do that. And you start to learn who you can trust and who are associates and then who you should probably stay away from. You know, that's another big thing. Just because somebody doesn't have your best interests in mind, that doesn't mean that they're bad. It could mean that they're bad, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. It just means you should know better than to spend a great deal of time with them or put anything that is uh, risky in their hands. And there are some people that, you know, you, you want to have as a trusted associate. And then there's some people you hold on to like your life depends on it because no matter what, they're going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear, or they're going to help run through that wall with you or protect you when you're at a low moment, because, you know, despite being a CEO, despite running a company, um, despite having all the experience that I have, there are moments where I question, like, Oh, cow, what I do? 
this is bananas. Uh, this was not the right choice. I put my family at risk. You know, my in life, one of the greatest pleasures I have is being a father and a husband and I'm going to fail. And that just brings all the anxiety. Um, so that was the biggest surprise. It wasn't, there were a couple other surprises along the lines of really an insurance, how little people know how insurance really works. That was a huge surprise. You know, three years in, um, I am one of the experts in our field. It's insanity. I have to remind myself that sometimes because it's hard for me to fathom. There's that cub again, right? Not the lion, the cub going, right. how, how have I been here three years and I'm one of the experts in my field? That shouldn't happen, um, but I am. And I have to remind myself that. And that was the second piece. So the anxiety and pressure was one and two was how little a lot of people in this industry truly know about the mechanics of the financials, how it works, how risk distribution works, and how do you create efficiency and who do you need to help with that efficiency? And when you say that that, um, that was a surprise in terms of what people didn't know about insurance, are you, you're, you're not talking about the general employee, uh, you're talking about the people at the in the field are charged yes. of the healthcare plan. Yeah, interesting. Correct. Wow. Correct. Yeah. Very yeah. It was. It was a. Uh, it was. It was very interesting, and and I understand it. Again, if you go back to my HR, I focus on people, right? I want. I want to understand what make people click, what what makes them fragile, and how do you help them feel less fragile because they can be more efficient. But I, I realize that you, you get thrust into these roles that are high pressure. Um, they have a lot of zeros behind them, so there's a lot of of performance behind it. And they're afraid to admit that they maybe don't know about something um, because that might make them weak or someone might perceive that as weakness. And in fact, some of the best people in this industry are ones that who have been in it way longer than we have and I have. Like, would you just explain this to me a little bit more? I want to understand it. I don't need to know it at your level, but I need to understand a little bit better. And I'm going, what a great compliment that is to me to ask me. It makes me feel better about what I do. And I get to educate you. And in this conversation, you're going to educate me on things that I didn't know either. Um, that that to me is is one of the the biggest things professionally that our our field could do is just be a it's it's a word that nobody likes. Um, be more vulnerable and say I don't know this. Um, and coming from my old seat, when I had people selling me stuff, when I had people telling me something, and they said I don't know, I immediately knew I could trust them. Sounds weird, but they said I don't know because that means you're telling me you don't. And then I wanted you to follow up with, I'll go find out. Yeah. But when you said, I don't know, that was huge. Cool. Instead of yeah. telling me something and going, oh, that's a lie to bull. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, when you're, you know, you, when you're the founder or CEO and you're, you know, a, a company size of one, obviously you're doing a lot of things, but it, and again, I don't know how many contract employees or whatever you have, but you seem, you seem to run lean. I mean, just on LinkedIn, you have eight employees associated with. So how do you manage everything you're doing with, with like eight people, at least, like I said, according to LinkedIn? Yeah. So um, efficiency is one of the things that I, I pride myself on. Um, and one thing I learned about being a head of HR and, and serving CEOs um, is mm, a lot of them will evaluate their own success by the size of their company and growth and size means that they're being successful and it doesn't. Um, and I had a very good leader at eSolutions that taught me that he would say, you know, if you're going to do something, try it with one or two people. Don't hire 10 people. And if it fails, you got to fire eight and then maybe find a home for the two people that are good. Hire one or two people, prove out the process. And then if it works, let's, let's hire. Um, we've been very fortunate to have a lot of people interested in our business and, and would love to invest and, and would love to, to partner with us. And they shake their heads too. And I, and I said, the first thing you're going to tell me to do is hire like 20 or 30 people because businesses at our revenue size typically have 30 to 40 employees. But why do we need 30 and 40 employees when we can do it with eight? Um, you know, we need to build our infrastructure around mainly um, customer interaction. You know, we do a really good job at where we're at in size of having people adaptable and available to do that. But as we grow, that's where we're going to need to spend our money in, in infrastructure for the customer side. You know, uh, we've been super blessed to not have a distribution problem. You know, we, we do mostly triage in sales versus outreach and, you know, pounding the pavement and, and calls. And again, I cannot begin to tell you 
how much of a blessing that is to, you know, have to have met somebody early on and told them what we do. And he goes, you're kidding me. And I said, no, that's what we do. And he told somebody else and he told somebody else. And before you know it, you know, again, the, the pandemic helped from this perspective, but, you know, we started um, in Tennessee and then we go to California and then we're now in New York and now we're in Florida and it, it's just everywhere. And it's because people started to understand what we were doing and, and share that. But as we grow, the magic is we need to make sure that our employees that are trusting us with that that solution, that we're available to them, um, the companies who are managing the plans that were available to help decode things and educate them. And so as we grow, we, we've got to build that infrastructure there. And so we'll grow as we grow. But listen, whether I run a company that's 40 lives, 100 lives, 250 lives, 500, to me, it doesn't matter. Um, it matters that what we have built is continuing to grow and get better every day because we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. There are things that we learn every single day. And as long as we're growing uh, responsibly and we're able to serve our customers, both on the brokerage side and the employer groups, then that's how I will evaluate success, not by the, the headcount. So just two things based on uh, what you just said. You're the first CEO to admit that size does not matter. So that's great. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and two, that person was right. You're resourceful. Look at that. I mean, you're running, you know, a company that should be, you know, three, four, five X of what you're at in terms of employee size based on your revenue. So that's phenomenal. And uh, uh, kudos to you on, on that. Thank that's, you. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, so what, uh, you know, we're two more months, we're into 2024. What, what would you like to see, uh, you know, where would you like to see true captive be in, you know, December 31st, uh, 2024? That's a great question. And I will tell you, it, it happened at the beginning of last year where we were on the scene, we were growing, and then we started to get mentioned in the same sentence as the biggest names in our industry. And that was incredibly flattering. It was like a, you know, kind of like a whoa moment. Um, and so, you know, as we thrust into this year, we're, we're performing incredibly well in terms of our loss ratio, which uh, a loss ratio is simply the amount of insurance you purchase and the amount of risk that you have. Um, so I would tell you that we're, we're one of the leaders from that perspective. Um, so we continue to be mentioned with some of the, the biggest names and that is flattering. I am greedy. And when I say I'm greedy, I mean, I'm, I don't want to stop at how well we've done this year. I want to go into 24 and I want to continue to learn more about our customers. Where can we get better? Um, the things where the industry is trending, how can we be ahead of that and create solutions where um, we're able to uh, respond in good time, in real time? You don't have to have the damn answer when it happens because that would be foreseeing the future. People that foresee the future are lucky. They're, they're good at um, assimilating information and creating a probability factor. Like that's good, but you still didn't know. It was, a, it was an educated guess and you lucked out. Um, so in that sense is be adaptable and be prepared. So I want us just to continue doing that and drive our loss ratios down um, because that the loss ratio being low is a direct reflection of our groups having a great experience. Um, I talked to a, you know a group yesterday where I was saying, I'm flattered and I'm humbled that people are looking at our company for the things that they're doing. And, and I'm incredibly proud of the team and the work that they've accomplished. Like you mentioned, it's a small but mighty team. They've accomplished what you know three, four times people should be accomplishing. That work is only possible if the groups who have placed their trust in us believe in the things we're sharing with them and taking the steps that we ask them to. Conversely, um, some of the great broker partners that we work at uh, work with throughout the country, believing us and trusting us with their customer, you know, we don't sell direct, so they have to trust us that we won't mess up. And if we do mess up, we're going to fix it. And they've heard it before, right? They've heard it from everybody. The, the lack of trust in this industry is staggering because everybody's messed up somewhere. The, the, the biggest mistake is they didn't go, I messed up and let's work together to create a solution because we'll, we'll retain business that way. Uh, but it's those producers that have trusted us with the thing that creates the livelihood and their ability to fund their family and fund things that they enjoy doing. And so as, as we move into 24, it's just continuing to do that and, and recognize who's helping us be successful. 
it, it really is a combination of people. And I joke about this all the time. Much of what we've done is common sense. And I think we've cornered the market in common sense and common sense hasn't cost us a dollar. Um, so I, I think that's what I want to see in 2024 is just to continue to grow responsibly because that's how you, that's how you build a program in insurance is you do it responsibly. Dramatic growth is great. It's fun. It looks cool on a spreadsheet. Lots of people like it who are investing in that. That's awesome. But if you do it in the wrong way, it's going to come down as equally fast. Um, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in sustainable growth that will build year over year, that'll drive value for our customers, that'll drive value um, for everybody who's involved. And you do that through strong partnerships. You do that through listening and learning. And, and I want our team to continue to do that. Two uh, groups I, I try to help uh, the most uh, in, in this uh, uh, podcast is uh, with great leadership advice from great leaders like yourself, David, is the first group is recent college graduates. So obviously you uh, were one of those. And uh, what, what uh, advice would you give them as they embark on their first professional job and begin their career journey? Find a balance between listening to someone and taking it at gospel and challenging everything somebody says in your mind. I don't mean challenge it like buck the system. I mean, challenge it like if someone says two plus two is five, and they're, they're widely knowledgeable. They're very respected. And you know, two plus two is four. Work that out on a piece of paper. Like try to understand it because that does two things. It makes you smarter because you're learning to problem solve. You're, you're, you're using the power of deduction, right? Um, that helps you understand that. Now, I said do it in your head because if you buck the system or you challenge everything as a, as a recent college grad, you're going to be a recently ex exited employee. Um, so be careful with that. Uh, but I think the second thing is, is try to learn from as many people as you possibly can, but you're going to look for two things. One is what to do. And the other one is what not to do. Cause there are many leaders that I've learned amazing lessons from that. They do things that I was like, wow, that is fascinating. I, I cannot even believe that anyone could do that. And then there's also leaders that I've gone, are you freaking kidding me? That's the most basic thing you should never do. And you just did it. Um, so learn what do I want to do and what don't I want to do and continue to shape yourself. That's how you do it. And listen, I promise you the people that work for me, they're learning lots of cool things that I do. And hopefully it helps them propel their career with us. And ultimately, if they ever move on in that next spot, um, but I'm sure they're learning stuff not to do. Um, and that's okay. Um, as long as you don't make the big mistakes, right? Like that's, that's what I try to avoid. So the first one is challenge everything, but do it privately. Really try to put it on the microscope, understand it, use the power of deduction. And then number two, learn from people what to do and what not to do. Yeah, no, it's great advice. Um, the second group is, you know, most people come out of college or individual contributors. So then they get that promotion. Now you're responsible for a team of three or five or 10, whatever it is. What advice would you... Uh, have for that group as they begin their leadership journey? Be radically honest with yourself. Um, this is still something that I battle with today. I'm good at what I do. Um, Uncharacteristically, I'm good at different things. And it, it's, it's, I'm blessed to have the skills that I do. And a lot of times I don't see them as being exceptional skills. I kind of think that everybody can do them. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's that's fun. But here's the problem. If I expect people to operate in my capacity, that's not fair to them because they aren't going to operate in my capacity. Hopefully I can't operate in their capacity either. We've built a strong team with with different skills. But when you get thrust into the role, you probably were evaluated for doing something great. Maybe you're the best salesperson on the floor. Maybe you were the best operational leader. Maybe you built the best code, whatever. Um, you might suck at leadership. You, you just might. And um, if you do, that doesn't mean that you can't get better at it. Um, it also might mean that you might not be ready for it or you might never be ready for it. You got to be honest with yourself, but don't expect people to do the things that you do or do them the way that you do. That is really important. I had a leader once um, tell me clarity is the friend of accountability. If you're clear with people what you want, then you can hold them accountable. So really try to understand that they're not going to be you. They're not going to do it your way. Um, and if you expect them to do it that way, you need to be clear about it and have a conversation so they know what they need to do so they can meet expectations. And if they don't, 
since you were clear, now you can hold them accountable and find out where the, where the defect is. But when you get promoted into that first role, you've got to be super honest with yourself. And, and that's where things get broken down as you expect everybody to operate your way. Um, and, and they're just not. And so you're either going to be super depressed and disappointed, or it's going to be an opportunity to go, okay, let me take what I'm really good at. Let me help them understand where they can get better. Let me give them 10% of me. And if they take 10% of me and then they can go make it into something awesome for themselves, enjoy that ride. Yeah, I love that quote and that philosophy. I had not heard that before, but it's incredible. Uh, David, uh, you've brought true captive insurance in the last three plus four years uh, to uh, you know a, a very uh, great journey. I can't wait to see what you do in the future. So thank you for being part of the corporate couch today. Great, thank you for having me. It's been a great time. It was so great to catch up with David. I'd like so many things about him. Besides, he's, he shares uh, his love uh, like I do for the New York Yankees. So, yeah. Uh, but I just, I, I love how he uh, was recruited basically by, he was recommended by several people for this well-known uh, philanthropic organization. And, you know, he was the candidate of choice, but they were using an outside recruiter. And this recruiter was kind of a jerk, right? And basically, yeah. you know, basically had a, a line during the interview. Uh, I'm not sure what you're good at, <laughs> and, and, but you're resourceful. And it was a criticism, like he was criticizing that he was resourceful. And that fueled David, much like Michael Jordan got fueled by criticism. Um, uh, I'm not saying um, David may or may not be the goat of uh, the NBA, but uh, it, it, for CEOs, but he could be, but he fueled that in a positive way and it drove him. And then, you know, years later, he starts, a, he founds a company, True Captive, he's the CEO, and he's resourceful. And he, here's a, a CEO with no ego, because whether you're a CEO, a VP, a director, a lot of these leaders, they want the biggest org chart possible, because it, it means power, yeah. right? Yeah. And here's a CEO where it says size does not matter. He's, you know, employee size, like he's running that company with eight people. And he says that we're our, our revenues should be, we should have 30 to 40 employees. So he is resourceful and that's a positive and he just, and it fueled him. And I just, I, I just love that, uh, that, that part of the story I think it's incredible. That's the whole, that's similar to the concept of judo where you use, uh, uh, some weakness and use it against you and where the recruiter was trying to use that as I don't know as an insult but certainly not a not a flattering uh, observation and uh, he used it in his power so Joe what was your take on the episode well you know he used one thing that was it was kind of a throwaway line but it, it really struck with me most of his career has been uh, not in insurance where he is now, but was in HR. And uh, HR has always kind of fascinated me. I've always tried to figure out, well, what is what is it that attracts people to HR? What, what do they actually do or anything? One of the lines that he said was that uh, HR has no authority. Then I think what he meant to say was essentially all they can do is implement. They can implement either what the law says or what upland management says, but it, they are, um, what was it that, that you said one time, the HR is the most risk averse? Um, yeah, they're most, yeah, they're most risk averse functional area, yeah, I believe. Because they, because they, they can't do anything. All they can do is implement. And uh, he needed to, he needed that as, as an escape medicine, as he escape mechanism. He got out of HR, I think, essentially because of that, because he felt like that they had no authority and uh, had to get into a situation in insurance um, where uh, he he felt like he was a little bit more in control. I, I don't think that he meant that really as a significant piece of his interview, but it really struck me as odd, that whole concept of HR without authority. Like Pamela Norton said, uh, the great, great CEO that we interviewed, uh, 
I don't know what episode, but uh, she's the CEO of Title Chain, serial tech entrepreneur. But she started her career in HR, and she she said, if you're creative, HR is not the right place. For right, you. because all she was doing was just filling out forms, uh, right, all the time. Like, here's a form. And I'm not saying okay. you know there's great HR people, and that they should you know great HR people help create a great culture. So yeah, um, we, so, you know I, we, we don't want to lose half of our HR audience. <laughs> uh, we we love all HR people. It's just it's just kind of in a in a category all of its own. Exactly. Uh, Joe, what leadership advice uh, do you have for our audience today? We are going to go to that great philosopher, Lucy Van Pelt. And Lucy one time said, did you know that water is the most essential element of life? Because without water, you can't make coffee. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.